So last week, Steve finished the story of Ruth and he talked about our need for a redeemer. And it was the perfect start for our Advent series. And today is technically, officially the first Sunday of the Advent season. And so that's why I'm bringing out my like nice sweater and all comfy. And we're gonna talk about the promise of a redeemer. So Advent If you don't know, it means arrival, and it's a time to remember how God's people waited for the arrival of their Messiah, and it's also a time to anticipate the Messiah's second arrival and the the final fulfillment of all his promises. Because Advent is a time of waiting, it's a time of hope. But hope is hard to have when it seems like the world is falling apart, right? And for the Jewish people at the time of Luke chapter one, their history was uh, one filled with waves of war, foreign oppression and desolation. And now they're under the rule of a harsh Roman empire and the people are getting desperate. And this is the climate in which we find a priest named Zechariah. He and his wife, Elizabeth, they were childless and they were now past their childbearing years. But one day, the angel Gabriel suddenly appears and he tells Zechariah that Elizabeth is going to bear a son. It's going to be a miracle. The boy will be named John. And he will, Luke 1.17 says, make ready for the Lord a people prepared. This phrasing is a direct callback to Malachi 3.1. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So this messenger, this baby boy would be proof that God has not forgotten his covenant and that the Messiah is on the move. But instead of being super excited, Zechariah responds in Luke 1.18, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. This isn't that innocent of a question. He's demanding proof. I'll believe it when I see it. It's an interesting response because as a priest, he was definitely familiar with the story of how God gave Abraham and Sarah a son in their old age. But something's going on here. Well, Gabriel does not appreciate the sass. And so he wants to teach Zechariah a lesson. Gabriel takes away his voice. And it can be easy to judge Zechariah, but his pessimism should sound familiar to us. With recent wars and pandemics, politics, natural disasters, even the drastic dip in quality of recent Marvel movies, like things are not going great, okay? And some people worry that things may not possibly ever get better. And we see it in how anxiety depression, and deaths of despair have skyrocketed. The researcher Gene Twenge found that more than 40% of 12th graders said they found it hard to have hope for the world. And even if you don't struggle with these feelings, there's no denying that, as Alan Noble says, a significant segment of the American population finds life unbearable. This existential dread is even present in the the music of popular artists like Billie Eilish and Olivia Rodrigo and comedians like Bo Burnham. Poet Christian Wyman calls what we're living through a plague of modern despair. But what Advent tells us is that there's a different story. 
the story that answers every longing we have. And, and it's not just wishful thinking. That's just like, well, religion makes me feel better than just staring into the eternal darkness of the void. So I'm just going to do that. No, it's actually true. So back to Zechariah. After several voiceless months, Zechariah eventually finds that the answer to hopelessness is found in God's covenant. The baby is born and Zechariah affirms finally that his name is John. And at that gesture of faith, his voice returns and he prophesies with a song of thanksgiving. So look at our main passage for the day, Luke 1, 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. After the birth of the church, this song became known as the Benedictus, which means blessed in Latin, and Christians have consistently sung it as a hymn for the past 1,400 years. So why is this prayer so significant? Well, with it, Zechariah looks back at the covenants and he sees them as being connected with what God is doing right there in his midst. God has not abandoned his people and peace is coming. So what are the covenants necessarily? Well, a covenant, it's a, it's a very unique form of agreement in the ancient Near East, very different from a contract, which those are more about self-interest, maximizing profit, uh, while limiting fallout. But a covenant is about self-giving love, not business. And it's a very intimate partnership that's comparable to the bonds of family. Covenants, they don't have an expiration date, and they would even be passed down to your descendants. And in the ancient world, there were different types of covenants. Uh, one common type uh, of a covenant was between a powerful ruler and a vassal. So the vassal, they would agree to be loyal to the ruler and not like rebel and stuff. And then the ruler, in turn, would protect the vassal. And then covenants would be sealed through some sort of a ritual. One kind of ritual was called cutting a covenant. It involved cutting an animal in two. And this was sometimes utilized in the ruler vassal type of covenant. And then the vassal would walk through the blood of the divided animal as a statement saying, let what happened to this animal happen to me if I should break this covenant. It showed the seriousness of this new relationship. And so that's how humans made covenants with each other. But one of the unique things about the God of the Bible, in contrast to the pagan gods of the day, is that he makes covenants with his people, binding himself to them. Really, 
That's what the whole story of the Bible is about from Genesis to Revelation. It's one big unified story about God's covenant faithfulness to redeem his people. And because of that, the Bible is to be read through a covenantal lens. Charles Spurgeon said, the doctrine of the covenant lies at the root of all true theology. The word covenant is so central to the story of scripture that it appears 316 times in the Bible. And even how the Bible is organized is influenced by the covenants, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Testament here means covenant. It's coming from the Latin word testamentum. It's the old covenant and the new covenant. God's plan of redemption, it was always the plan from the beginning. It, it begins right at Genesis, Genesis 3.15. Adam and Eve, at this moment, they're deceived by the serpent and they eat the forbidden fruit and now God is rendering judgment. But at the same time, God also makes a promise. I will put enmity between you, that's the serpent, and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So God is promising here that a descendant of the woman is going to crush the serpent. Yes, evil is present, but evil will be defeated by the offspring of Eve. Somewhere down the line, God will bring a redeemer. Then several, several chapters later in Genesis, humanity fails again and God renders judgment and floods the earth, but he preserves the offspring of the woman through Noah's family. And after the flood, God makes a covenant that he will have mercy and no longer destroy his creation with the flood. Very thankful on weekends like this, right? And next, God chooses a family through which he will fulfill his plan to redeem the world. He makes a covenant with Abraham. And the covenant contains three main blessings from the Lord. One, that he would give Abraham's descendants the land of promise. Two, that they would become a nation. And then three, that his offspring, uh, from his offspring, all the nations of the world would be blessed. Abraham's family, family then becomes a nation and is enslaved in Egypt but God delivers them and redeems them from captivity. And at Mount Sinai, God makes a covenant with them and institutes the law, showing what it looks like to be his covenant people, but also showing that he wants to dwell with his people. He wants a relationship with them. And God treats this like a marriage ceremony. If Israel is faithful to this covenant relationship, they will be blessed. But if they commit adultery with idols, then God says they will be cut off from the land and from his presence. God leads Israel into the land that was promised to Abraham and he establishes them there. And then later, God makes a covenant with King David, promising that from his offspring would come a king who would rule forever, who would bring peace to the nations and conquer the enemy crush the serpent. But not long after David, both Israel and its kings are unfaithful. And eventually they are cut off from the promised land and from God's presence. The temple is destroyed. The dynasty of David is dethroned and God's people are exiled into pagan lands by foreign powers 
and it seems like there's no hope left. But in the middle of that, the prophets come along and declare that God has not forgotten his people or his promises. Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. A new covenant for God's people. And although this is called the new covenant, it's not new in terms of being something just completely different. It's new in the sense of being bigger and better and more complete. It's the continuation and perfect fulfillment of all the covenants that came before. John Calvin put it this way, the covenant made with all the patriarchs is so much like ours in substance and reality that the two are actually one and the same. And spoiler alert, this is the covenant that Jesus comes to institute and bring us into. So Zechariah's prayer reaches back through history, and it shows us that God's covenants are a way to understand that story as our story. So since the covenants impact our story, I want to spend the rest of our time focusing on five main blessings God promises in his covenants, all right? So the first one is grace. God's covenant gives grace. Zechariah, uh, he, he prays in verse 68, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. First thing he acknowledges is God coming near to us. All throughout the Bible, God has always wanted to be with his people. It's a huge act of grace. Grace, it's an undeserved gift. And Zechariah knows that God's people have done absolutely nothing to deserve God's presence. And yet God has come anyway. All of God's covenants are divinely initiated. He is the one who stoops down to an undeserving humanity who is not seeking him and reveals himself to us. But as humans, we have a hard time with grace, especially in the West. We now live in what a philosopher Byung-Chul Han calls an achievement society. It's a works-based culture where your value and your worth are based on your achievements. Maybe it's about accruing wealth, possessions, high status, or a championship, uh, about getting the best grades, the best job, the best house. For others, it's about crafting the right kind of life with the perfect balance of work and play, fun vacations, a toned body with no wrinkles, the right kind of clothes and cute pets. Many of these things alone are not bad, right? 
but in achievement society has a disordered view of these things. And it presents us with a problem. How will you know when you've done enough? Well, just one slip up, erase all the things you've achieved before. And can you keep up this pace? And what happens if you've achieved everything you've set out to and you're still not happy? And this is why Han says that an achievement society inevitably turns into a burnout society. And because this is a feature of our culture, even we as Christians, we can't fully escape it because we are immersed in this. I know I struggle with this, but here's the good news. Zechariah says, God redeems his people, not because they've earned it, but because of the tender mercy of our God. It's because of who he is, not who we are or what we have done. Grace is one of the things that our world needs most right now. In the midst of our achievement society, people need to see there is another way. We've been trying and trying to justify ourselves, justify our existence. And God is over here saying, I just want to dwell with you. In Genesis 15, Abraham, called Abram at the time, asks for assurances that the Lord will give him the son that was promised. And God answers, not with a big miraculous sign, but by commanding Abram to cut some animals in half. Abram, being uh, from that culture, knows what's happening here. God's wanting to cut a covenant. And this would be like one of those ruler vassal type covenants. And remember, vassal would be the one to walk through the blood, right? But God puts Abram to sleep. And Abram sees a vision of a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch representing God's presence. And those objects pass through the pieces. The king walks through the blood instead of the servant. Why? God is saying that he would bear the weight of keeping this covenant, that the shedding of his own blood would be the payment if the covenant is broken. It's a complete reversal of what normally happens in these kinds of covenants. It's an act of grace. And God's grace doesn't stop there. Not only is a covenant with him unmerited, but it's unconditional too. He doesn't just make covenants with people, he keeps them. And he won't unpredictably change his mind. He's not waiting for us to fail so he can just bail on us. He is steadfast even when his people are not. And Ezekiel 16 uh, shows that even despite Israel breaking their covenant with God, he still chooses to redeem them. Ezekiel 16, 59 through 60. For thus says the Lord God, I will deal with you as you have done. You who have despised the oath in breaking the covenant, yet I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish for you an everlasting covenant. Even when we are faithless, he is faithful. The second blessing of the covenant is that God gives purpose. Remember that being in a covenant, it's an active partnership. It's about working together for a common goal. And for us, when we join his covenant people, that's the church, that means we are called to join together with God for a specific goal. We are given a purpose. 
And this is more grace for us because the story that the modern world tells us is that we are not given a purpose. Instead, we have to discover that purpose for ourselves, which I mean, it sounds nice at first. Who doesn't want that kind of freedom? But if you think about it, that narrative is saying that the burden to justify your reason for existence falls purely on you. And what does that even mean to like be true to myself? How do I know if I'm being the true me, right? Is it the me at school or the me at work or the me with my friends or the me with my spouse or my kids or the me when I'm all alone, which is really like three me's all arguing all at once. And then if I do any of this wrong or the people don't like the true me, then I have nowhere else to turn and no one else to blame. Your own identity then and purpose for being on this earth is just another assignment for the achievement society to place on you. But with a covenantal God, we've been given an identity and a purpose. In the Benedictus, Zechariah says, he has redeemed his people. We are the redeemed. And it's a term used over and over again in the Old Testament and the New Testament about those God has rescued. That's who we are, the redeemed and we are his people. Our society says personal autonomy is the highest good. But the covenant says that there's a far higher good than just living for yourself. If you've been redeemed, you actually don't belong to yourself any longer. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body redeemed, bought and paid for by the blood of Jesus to rescue you from your slavery to sin. And Paul says that because of that redemption and new identity, we now have a purpose. Glorify God in your body. The word glorify means to show how great God is. And we do that by reflecting him, pursuing the things he desires, loving our neighbor as ourselves. Zechariah says that the light that comes from the Redeemer's arrival will guide our feet into the way of peace. This is a direct connection to Isaiah 59, verse 8. It's a chapter that's all about God keeping his covenant. And the Israelites, uh, in Isaiah's day, he says of them, the way of peace they do not know, and there is no justice in their paths. God is saying that one of the reasons he sent his people into exile was because they rejected God's laws and refused to partner with him and which led them to oppress the vulnerable. So Zechariah, Zechariah's prayer calls that verse to mind. And he says, that was the old us, but now with the Messiah, he will lead us to the heart of God and make us peacemakers so that we would reflect him in everything we do. The third thing is that God gives us community through the covenant, community. If a ruler made a covenant with a vassal, it would in effect be a covenant made with the vassal's entire household and even future generations. And so a covenant encompassed a whole body of people. It's a covenant community. So what does that mean? If you're in the new covenant, you have been placed into the covenant community of the church and receive all the blessings of that covenant. 
And sort of the first implication this means is that being a part of the covenant community is not optional. In fact, that's a massive part of what it means to be a recipient of the new covenant and its blessings. Remember, covenants form family bonds. We are called sons and daughters of God, adopted by him. And Christians have traditionally called each other brothers and sisters, even though we're not blood relatives. And unfortunately, we don't always act like family, but under the new covenant, God brings together people from different ethnicities, cultures, and economic levels, and makes us one new family, bonded by the blood of the covenant. And it's something we demonstrate every single Sunday when we take communion together. The second reason this matters is because we can't live life alone. Even our relationship with Jesus, we can't do alone. He made us for community. Recently, the Surgeon General reported that we are in an epidemic of isolation. About half of U.S. adults reported experiencing measurable levels of loneliness. And across all age groups, people are spending less time with each other in person than two decades ago. And the report found that lacking connection can increase the risk for premature death to levels comparable to, listen to this, smoking 15 cigarettes a day. How can this be? Aren't we more connected now than ever thanks to the internet? Well, the Surgeon General's report found that social media and online interactions are not an adequate replacement for in-person connection. Humans were made for real flesh and blood community. We cannot live life alone. As depressing as all that sounds, this is a unique opportunity for the church. This is a chance for the church to be a community of hope for a generation that has none. Peter Lightheart writes, It is the task of Christians to nourish hope within societies whose transient hopes have withered. Churches must become communities that cultivate radical hope. How do we go about this? There's no trick, nor is there any special ministry of hope. The church is a community of hope. And all of the church's ministries and activities express and nourish hope. The word nourishes hope. Prayer nourishes hope. Singing nourishes hope. Baptism nourishes hope. The Lord's Supper nourishes hope. When we open our homes to the homeless, feed the hungry, and clothe the naked, we act in hope and bolster hope as the Spirit builds our confidence in God's promises and good gifts. People need community. And so we have a chance as a church to offer that to people, true physical, in-the-flesh community where we can get off our phones and behold an image-bearer of God face-to-face. The fourth thing God's covenant gives us is peace. Several times in the prophets, God associates his covenant with peace. Like in Ezekiel 34, 25, I will make with them a covenant of peace. Peace in the Bible, it doesn't just refer to the absence of conflict or danger. The peace that God offers through his covenant is wholeness, not lacking anything. In fact, often it means superabundance and flourishing. The first thing, though, that God's people need to be whole is new hearts. It's where all our conflict and rebellion comes from. Ezekiel 11, 19 through 20. And I will give them one heart 
and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. The new covenant, it's gonna address the full root of the problem that the human heart is enslaved to sin. And no matter how much prosperity and security we accrue for ourselves, we will not be free of it on our own power. In the Old Testament, the ritual of circumcision was given to the Israelites to initiate them and their descendants into the old covenant. But even then, the true mark of God's covenant people had to do with the heart. Deuteronomy 30, verse six, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Only a heart changed by, uh, only with a heart changed by God are we able to follow him. And now as the church, Christians are marked by the new covenant. Paul writes to his fellow believers in Philippians 3, 3, for we are the circumcision who worship by the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So he's saying a circumcised heart has deep devotion to the Lord. And while the true mark of the new covenant is in our hearts, Paul does mention a ritual that outwardly shows our transition into the covenant community. It's baptism. Colossians 2, 11 through 12. In him, that's Jesus, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. If you've never been baptized, never publicly identified with Jesus's death, burial, and resurrection, we would love to baptize you. And after the service, you can sign up at the Connect table and at our next Baptism Sunday. We would love to help you declare yourself as a part of God's covenant community. But God's covenant doesn't just restore our hearts. He also promises to redeem all of creation. The Dutch theologian Herman Bovink writes, grace is something other and higher than nature, but it nevertheless joins up with nature, does not destroy it, but restores it. Grace restores nature. Grace is less interested in just burning everything down and starting over. Grace is focused on bringing things back to where they were meant to be. And with creation, it will be brought back to that Eden ideal of peace, flourishing, and safety. The, the prophets often describe the Messiah's return as inaugurating not just an Eden, though, but an Eden that's expanding to the wilderness and beyond. The curse is reversed and peace is spreading. The theologian Grace Sutanto writes, the scope of God's redemptive grace itself is unsatisfied with the renewal of individuals or the spiritual life of humanity, but has to do with the whole cosmos. Then the fifth blessing we receive from the covenant is hope. Covenant gives us hope. God's covenant, it doesn't just renew everything. He promises to defeat evil once and for all. 
Zechariah's prayer alludes to this when in verse 71, he says that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. This is completely pointing back at that first promise in Genesis 3.15 toward the crushing of the snake. And this is why we can have hope. We don't have to deliver ourselves. The Lord is the deliverer. But it's easy to see why people feel hopeless though, again, right? If all we have is ourselves, what happens if the circumstances feel far larger than anything we can handle? Without God's covenant, we don't really have a transcendent reason to hope. Paul reminds his readers of their state before coming to Jesus in Ephesians 2, 12. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. The quest for meaning in our modern world instead ends often in nihilism, the belief that there's no real meaning to life. It's because our world is unable to offer any of those transcendent answers they're looking for. Modernity instead says, or at least implies, Everything that ever was and ever will be is just physical matter. Atoms bouncing around a silent universe. Creatures live and suffer and die in this universe. And there's no reason for any of it other than that's just how it goes. There's no ultimate categories of right and wrong because nature doesn't see things through such a lens. There's no eternal meaning to your life or anyone's life. And there's just today and what you can make of it. And some succumb to the hopelessness with anxiety, despair, and addiction. But others, they embrace the nihilism. They embrace the way of nature and adopt the might makes right attitude, the I'm going to look out for myself lifestyle, or maybe they just want to watch the whole world burn. And the Silicon Valley's answer to all this is, well, maybe if we just try, you know, not to die, like invent enough things, we can just avoid all this. Good luck with that. But others decide that nihilism isn't an option, but they don't have a better answer. So they choose to live as if all this mattered. Live as if there is a standard of justice, as if you should love your kids and spouse, as if you are truly an individual with dignity, value, and worth, and just ignore that funny feeling deep inside that says, what if you're wrong? I know that it's hard even for Christians to push against these feelings and and this story that we hear. We know intellectually, at least, that the Bible says uh, that God is sovereign and good, but it can still be so easy to just get overwhelmed with everything, all of this. But we live in what is called the already not yet reality of the kingdom. Christians are already under the new covenant and receive many of its blessings, but we have not yet seen the final reality of what is promised to come. And sometimes, though, that not yet part really can sting. And some well-meaning people, but ultimately unhelpful, will come along and they'll say things to you like, well, have you just like tried to not be hopeless? Well, it doesn't work like that. Hope's not a light switch that you can just suddenly turn on if you just decide to. It's a daily habit you have to cultivate. 
That's why God told the Israelites to continually rehearse the words of the covenant. They did it daily. And then even their whole calendar was anchored around the reality of God's promises with the feasts and the festivals. It's much like what we're doing with Advent right now. It's a way to say life doesn't feel hopeful right now, but here's why I can try to have hope. Nothing answers the absurdity of human existence quite like God's covenant. It tells us that no matter who you are, every single human being you encounter has been made in the image of God, that there is a divine standard of justice and that all injustices will be dealt with, including the ones we have caused. Yes, you are broken, but God sent his son to die for you as the sacrifice to pay for your sins and initiate the new covenant. And because Jesus rose from the dead, conquering sin, crushing the serpent, everything matters. In Isaiah 42, verses six through seven, God says these words to the servant of God. That's the promised Messiah. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I give you as a covenant. It's not just that the Messiah is the fulfillment of the covenant, but that he is the covenant. First Corinthians 1.20, for all the promises of God find their yes in him, He's the embodiment of the covenant, a picture and proof of God's desire to dwell with us and redeem us. It's like when the Lord walked through the blood of the animals and and took on the terms of the covenant himself. Jesus is God become flesh. He literally draws near to us by becoming one of us. And he then cuts the covenant with his own blood and bears the consequences of our sinfulness. We have a God who keeps his promises. Therefore, we can have hope. Zechariah said that God has visited and redeemed his people to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. You know what Zechariah's name means? Yahweh remembers. While God's people were sitting and wondering if God had forgotten them, He sends his answer to a man named Yahweh remembers. Psalm 105, eight through nine says, he remembers his covenant forever. The word that he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant that he made with Abraham, his sworn promise to Isaac. In Ezekiel 16, 60, I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish for you an everlasting covenant. Things are uncertain right now. There's a lot of anxiety about things, but God's covenant shows that no matter what is happening, we can hold fast to the truth that even if the world is falling apart, Yahweh remembers. His promises will come to pass. We do not live in a cold, lifeless universe. We are living right in the middle of this incredible story. And like Steve said last week, God's story is best and the story isn't finished. Let's pray.